Now, there are two interesting things here in this text, especially if we look at verse 8. We're going to see this whole section in terms of that verse. And in that verse there, it says, first of all, Isaiah hears the Lord ask, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Who will go for us? Now, I find that striking. Um, Calvin uh, says in his Institutes, you know, that God doesn't need us for his cause in the world because he does have all of these millions of angels there. And God could, in a heartbeat, accomplish the Great Commission just by sending his angels down to earth to do it. In fact, one of the jobs of a seraph or an angel was to function as a medium of communication between heaven and earth. But God doesn't. He asks, who will go for us? God is pleased to have finite, imperfect human beings to share in the work of spreading his word. Prophets in the Old Testament, his church in the New Testament. Second, this is interesting, who will go? You see, the Lord wants us to want to be part of his mission. And that means that the Great Commission, go into all the world, is not only a command, but it's especially an invitation that the Lord wants us to eagerly and enthusiastically embrace. God is not looking for reluctant partners whom you have to drag to the Great Commission like you're bringing them to the dentist. We see Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And what about the church? How can we get or maintain that kind of enthusiasm for participating in God's work? How can the church get and stay on fire for missions? And I think this passage will provide some hints. First of all, getting on fire for missions involves acknowledging the greatness of God. Getting on fire for missions involves acknowledging the greatness of God, and that's in those first four verses. If you come away with anything from this passage, you come away with a sense of the greatness of God. Each of these first four verses speak of God's greatness. Verse 1, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So we see Isaiah has a vision of a glimpse into heaven itself, into the throne room he can see. He sees the Lord seated on a throne. Every bit of this picture speaks of God's greatness. He's on the throne. He's high. You have to strain your neck in order to see him. He's exalted, literally lifted up. Everything about his position says he is the highest rank and power over all. And the train of his robe filled the temple. It's said that at the wedding of royal persons, you get an idea of their importance by the length of the train on the bride's dress. Remember that, girls, that, you know, it depends on how long the train of your, your dress is, and it, it, it shows how important you are, at least with royal folks. Uh, up in Grand Rapids, we just uh, completed uh, they, this. They had a, a Princess Diana exhibit there. I guess about 80 or 100,000 people came to see it, and they also showcased her, her wedding dress. Now, I didn't go to the exhibit, but I'm old enough to remember the actual wedding on television. I remember that her, the, her, the train of her dress was like 50 feet long down the aisle of the church. Well, here, 
the train of his robe fills the temple. And it speaks of his highness and the power of God. And then these angels in verse 2. Above them were seraphs, each with six wings. Now, according to some scholars, the word seraph is related to the word to burn brightly. So, these angels are on fire. Now, what about these six wings? Okay, with two wings they fly. I think we got that. Um, But then, with two wings covering their faces. Well, that, you see, denotes humility. I mean, you don't look into the eyes of the great king, right? So, you know, you show your humility by with two wings covering your face. And then they had two wings covering their feet. Well, that also that denotes respect. I mean, you don't go marching into the throne room barefoot, right? Remember a few years back when President Bush was still president, W, the second Bush, and remember when um, that, uh, that female volleyball team who had won the championship came in to meet the president, and there was this big to-do because a bunch of the girls had flip-flops on. And they didn't know if they should let them come into the Oval Office, let them have a picture with the president in flip-flops because, you know, that just doesn't denote respect at all. Well, I don't know, I think Condoleezza Rice and Powell and all those guys had a meeting and decided that these were dress-up flip-flops or something, and it was okay. But uh, you don't go into the throne room uh, barefoot. And, of course, another job of the, of the angels, the seraphim, besides communicating God's message, uh, is to worship and praise the Sovereign Run, telling him day and night how great he is. And all of this, of course, again, pointing to the greatness of God. And then verse 3, the seraphim are calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Three holies, acknowledging not only the triune character of God, but also that he is entirely set apart from all others. In fact, he is omnipotent. He is omnipresent. And they're praising him. And when they praise him for his glory and they praise him as the Holy One, they're they're acknowledging all of his attributes from one end of the heavens to the other. And in verse 4, the praise of his greatness resounding through the heavens, their voices so loud that the doorpost and the thresholds shook. I mean, they turned up the subwoofers until the, the ceiling started to cave in. And the temple was filled with smoke, symbolizing the presence of God, like the pillar of cloud in the wilderness, the smoking Mount Sinai, the smoke that filled the tabernacle and the temple as they were dedicated, the glory cloud of God's presence. And you see, when Isaiah senses the greatness of God, Well, he wants to be part of whatever that God is part of. He wants to be part of that great mission to bless all the nations of the earth through his people. It's recorded that King Louis XIV of France died in 715 after a reign of 72 years. Being a humble fellow, he named himself the Great One. He also was the king who made the famous statement, I am the state. His court was the most magnificent in Europe, and he intended that his funeral would be the same. His body lay in a golden coffin. He gave instructions that the cathedral should be dimly lit with only a candle set above his coffin, thereby dramatizing his greatness. 
And it said that thousands gathered at the memorial service and waited in silence for the bishop to begin to speak. And reaching down, the bishop extinguished the candle and then said, only God is great. Well, if Isaiah could be moved by the greatness of God to be spreading God's message, don't you think that we of the Reformed faith ought to be more on fire for missions than any others? Following Calvin's lead, we, we see the sovereignty and the greatness of God as the foundation of biblical religion. Following Abraham Kuyper, we, we proclaim that not one square inch of this universe falls outside of the realm of the rule of our great king. Following the Reformation, we hold to God alone be glory, and that ultimately all things in time and eternity will serve to bring glory to God alone. What a thrill to be part of the mission of this great king, a mission that is global, a mission that cannot fail, a mission that no principality or power or WikiLeaks scheme or Mideast upheaval can compromise. You can't help but have a heart for missions if you have any sense at all of the greatness of God. Getting on fire for missions involves not only acknowledging God's greatness, but also confessing our unworthiness, verse 5. Now see how Isaiah sensed his and his people's sinfulness and unworthiness. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. You see, when you sense the greatness and the holiness of God, when you sense his presence for real, you can't help but sense your own sin and unworthiness because you kind of feel like a kid caught uh, standing in the house with his dirty boots on. Unclean lips, that means, according to one commentator, that he feels he's not worthy to add to the praises. Now, in this passage, we get a sense of worship. Isn't it often the case in, in worship that we start off with praise and then we go to a time of, of confession of our sin because we, we sense that our need for God and our unworthiness having entered into his presence. Now, how does confessing our unworthiness help us be and get on fire for missions? Well, here it is. Until we humble ourselves before God, we will not have a heart for his mission in the world. Until we set aside our own kingdom building, until we stop thinking about our mission, and if we, until we stop wanting what we want, we'll never have a heart for what God wants. However, when we humble ourselves before God, express our need for him, we will also desire to promote his kingdom, think about his mission, and learn to want what he wants. And once again, uh, Reformed theology excels like none other. Now, I'm aware of the fact that sometimes people knock Calvinism because, you know, it's big on sin. Sometimes has been ridiculed as worm theology after that hymn, Such a Worm as I. Um, and also, uh, you know, the innate amazing grace that says, Save a wretch like me. And of course, they'll say, Oh, no, I'm no wretch. Well, let me clue you in. Until we see that apart from Christ, we are wretched. 
we will never have a heart to pursue the things of God in life. Until we become completely undone in the presence of God, we will continue to be full of ourselves instead of filled with the presence of God. Chuck Colson, whom I consider a friend and a colleague, um, has a book on restorative justice that's called Justice That Restores. And he says that one of the main reasons that the criminal justice system is in the mess it is due to the fact that our society, since the Enlightenment, has not had a proper handle on the root cause of crime. Now, when we talk about crime and its causes and its environment, there are many things that come to mind that need to be addressed. For example, I mentioned earlier about uh, prisoners being unwanted kids, and 80% of people in prison didn't have a father in the home, and so we, we have to talk about their upbringing as contributing factors. Uh, most people in prison uh, did not complete a GED, and so we have to talk about educational failure in our country. Most people in prison are part of the poorest of the poor, and so we have to talk about poverty and its effect on our society. We have to talk about systemic injustice and getting a proper defense and all of those things. However, if we simply want to try to treat the criminals with therapy, along with addressing these other external environments will miss the fact that the root cause of crime is a sinner making wrong moral choices. And until we get at that root cause of crime, there can be no restoration of the criminal, let alone rehabilitation or even fixing a broken system. Well, that's only a microcosm, you see, of society as a whole and for us. Until we sense our unworthiness, we can never be restored to accomplish what God intended for us. And he intends that his people be restored to participate in his global mission of discipling the nations. Getting on fire for missions involves acknowledging God's greatness, confessing our unworthiness, and then there's one more thing that involves, very, very important, verses 6 to 7, says we must actually personally experience salvation. In his vision, Isaiah sees one of the angels with a live coal in his hand that he'd taken from the altar, and he touches Isaiah's lips with that live coal and says, your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. Now, I think you can pick up on the symbolism. The altar is where sacrifices were offered, including uh, sin offerings. The coal was live, so that means that the sacrifice was taking place. And the coal touching his lips symbolizes that Isaiah would be constituted worthy to stand in the king's presence and to offer praises to him. His sin would be taken away, atoned for. And when that coal touched his lips, he can be on fire. He can burn brightly like those heavenly messengers around God's throne. Now, of course, you know the rest of the story in the Old Testament. The Old Testament sacrifice didn't atone for sin in and of themselves. They atoned only as they anticipated that which was to come. The unclean people of God would soon be brought into exile, hinted at in verses 11 to 13, because of their covenant unfaithfulness. The second half of Isaiah, however, speaks of God's faithfulness in spite of Israel's unfaithfulness. God would preserve for himself a remnant. 
He would return his people to the promised land, and out of that post-exilic remnant would come the man of sorrows, says Isaiah 53, who would be despised and rejected by men, familiar with suffering. He would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment he would experience would bring us peace with God. That's the atonement for sin. And this is for all, according to Isaiah 55, who would respond to the invitation. Come. Come, all you who are thirsty. Come to the waters, you who have no money. Come, buy, and eat. Or, as we read in the New Testament, where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, let him open the door, and I'll come in, and we'll, we'll, we'll eat together. You see, we have to respond to the invitation. Jesus doesn't knock the door down. He's knocking. And he invites us to open that door. We must answer the invitation. You see, the coal needs to touch your lips and mine. The coal needs to touch our lips. One of the um, most meaningful times, I think, as a as a grandparent, that was a few years ago that one of our grandchildren, who shall remain nameless, um, came up to me and whispered in my ear, Grandpa, last week at the uh, GEMS conference, I invited Jesus into my heart. And that, that, that's a wonderful thing. And we need to all do that in our own way, in our own time, is to invite Jesus into our heart. The coal needs to touch our lips. Um, I hesitate whether to take time for this, but there's a story about Greg you should know. When we were living in Philadelphia, I was studying at Westminster Seminary there. And so our family was very young. He was like four or five years old. This was the end of the 70s. And um, we had a very small cracker box of a house, shared one bathroom and so forth, and he had his room, and I came by one morning to, uh, you know, to start getting ready for, for school that morning, and uh, Greg called me. You, I, don't, I don't think you remember this. We never, we've never discussed this, have we, all these years? Um, he called me into his room. He was all excited, and uh, he says, um, Dad, he said, God spoke to me last night. And, um, and his eyes were all right, you know? And uh, I was a seminarian who knew it all, of course, in those days. Um, and also, that was a time when, when Pentecostalism was kind of making some inroads. We were all scared to death of that stuff. You know? um, and so I, I went over to him like a wise father, and I said, uh, well, I says, um, I don't know about that. I said, I think the, I think the Lord speaks to us in the, in the Bible. And uh, the poor little kid's face just looked kind of crestfallen. And uh, I need to apologize to you for that. I should have, like uh, Eli, took the third time and said, next time you hear that, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And um, I, I don't know what you heard in your little bed that night, but uh, your life has shown that you've responded to the call, here am I, Lord, send me. And we all need to do that, to be on fire for missions. The Lord of the church is asking 
each of us. Who will go for us? Whom shall we send? Now, I know as good Reformed folks, we believe wholeheartedly that everything that we do is part of expanding God's mission. If we're a mom in the home, if we are a computer specialist, if we're, you know, working for the garbage company, whatever we're doing, we're, we're part of renewing society and expanding God's kingdom. And that's how we need to be on fire for what we're doing, that we're part of God's mission. But yet, in addition to all of that, I still think that all of us need to have some involvement and some hands-on ministry of, of, of bringing the good news and of reaching out to the down and out. Is that, is that too much to ask, you think? I know it's not for this church. I just saw 18 people up here, hands-on ministry, to work with, with orphans. This afternoon, I'm going to talk with instructors and others who are interested hands-on ministry to help people in need. And we can help people in soup kitchens and crisis pregnancy centers in so many ways that we need to be in a special way a part of God's mission. And also I just want to say that, that young people, listen to what I'm saying. Is God calling you to become a minister or to become a missionary or a Christian school teacher? Maybe this morning he's speaking to your heart, and you need to think about that and pray about that, of entering into that vocation of, of full-time part of God's mission in this special sense. But all of us can be involved in some way. Um, Mary's dad, not me, her real dad, um, he's, he's 87 now, and I, maybe Greg has shared this with you, um, and he has a ministry in Sarnia, um, that he's been doing. He had, to, he had to miss it for a couple of years from 85 to 87 because he had a stroke, but now he's kind of getting back at it again. And what he does at age 87 um, there in Sarnia is he brings meals to old people. You see, we can all have a ministry to reach people who are in need of the gospel. Because the fact is, a lively church is always on fire for missions. Because only a church on fire for missions is alive. The people of such a church acknowledge God's greatness, their own unworthiness, and indeed they have experienced divine forgiveness themselves and have a deep desire to share that good news with the world. They say, here I am, send me.